0: of a moving person. I hope that's all right. I tend to walk back and forth, um, even if it is just to get my steps up on my watch to make sure. Does anyone have an Apple Watch? You've got to close your rings, right? And, and any Apple Watch people here, am I the only one? I feel like people are yes, but they don't want to admit it. <laughs> don't want to admit it. Um, so yeah, it's great to be here. Um, uh, I've recently moved down to Melbourne. I moved um, to Melbourne Um, I was ministering in Sydney for eight or so years before my wife um, got a call to work at the Australian Union Conference. Um, If you don't know what that is, that's sort of like our national office, is that a good way of saying it? Our national office um, for um, Adventist churches here in Australia and we followed that calling down here and I was here for a year and then... Lockdown happened, so I basically didn't know anyone in Melbourne for like three years, which was lots of fun, apart from my wife. I did know her. Um and uh Chloe, our second, was born down here. So our oldest is Georgia, and um she's four. She's starting, as she calls it, big school next year. And and Chloe is two. Um she'll be three in like I better check the date. Two weeks. Uh, she'll be three in two weeks. So um just the four of us, and we live in the in the Lilydale area. Um, and yeah, it's been it's been cool to get to know some of the pastors here. Um, basically, the, is, um we have like an SOS. Um, Call came out as Jinha put it. We've got like a WhatsApp group of pastors. So I think Roy and Jinha were like, Praise the Lord for WhatsApp. Um, and because they're in a different time zone, it was sort of like that. would send a message and then you'd send a message and then they'd send a message at like midnight and then you'd send a message. Then you got an email at, like three o'clock in the morning or something. I wasn't actually checking my phone, then I was asleep. Um, so just with the time travelers back and forth. So, um, yeah, it's a pleasure to come and share with you. Um, I'm, as I, as Jinha said, I'm ministering at the Plenty Valley, which is in Mill Park, the northern suburbs. And we recently did a series called Trailblazers. And I thought I'd just share one of the stories, one of the trailblazers, um, that we went through and had a look at. And, um, the, the one that I've chosen for you this morning, uh, this morning, I mean, really, ch- I mean, like that really churchy language this afternoon, today, um, is, um, someone by the name of Samson. So I don't know if, um, if you uh, want to travel on with your Bibles with you, I have most of the verses, um, from scripture up on the screen for us. But if you do have a Bible, whether it be a paper Bible or on your phone, uh, we're going to be in the book of Judges where, um, the story of Samson. So this is like an, an old school photo, a photo. <laughs> painting from the renaissance era Um, obviously we've got samson in the middle We've got the very, very attractive um, Delilah on the left-hand side um, as they were painted back in the day, and then obviously the very European um, Philistines that came in to capture Samson. Um, so we're going to be looking at a little, mostly around the, the story of Samson and Delilah, if you know that story. Um, if you don't, I'll try and um, uh, fill in some of the pieces for you. So we're in the book of Judges, and to give you a little bit of context, um, the word judge, when you hear it, you probably think of that guy uh, or girl in, at court with the hammer who sits up the front in Australia. They wear those like curly hair things. I don't know what that's all about. I've never understood that. Um, and that's what we think of judge, or we think of at least someone who's making a decision on our behalf. You go before the court, you go before the judge. So when we look at the book of Judges, it's important not to put 21st century, 20th century thinking into that, because the book of Judges is probably better translated as a leader, but someone who had, had been given authority. So don't think king, don't think prince, don't think lords, just someone who was appointed at that time to be a leader. Now, they made judgment sometimes. You know, people would have a dispute between each other and they would um, prayerfully, um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they would actually make decisions for individuals in the nation. But a deliver, deliverer, deliverer, Savior or leader is actually a better translation. And to give you a little bit more context, Moses was known as the nation of Israel's first judge. So if you know Moses and he was a leader, he was their spiritual, he was the one who, who sort of spoke with God on their behalf, etc., uh, etc., cetera, et cetera. Moses was known as Israel's, the nation of Israel's first judge. So don't think of like someone who's making all the rules and administering law, but someone who is leading. Um, And that sort of gives us an idea of what happens within the book of Judges. But the book of Judges is actually a really, really interesting book in that, um, even though we've had like, we have like the book of Genesis, for those of you who may not know, the book of Genesis actually spans over thousands of years. Then you get to Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and uh, Exodus, so you got Genesis, then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That happens over the period of no more than about 120 years. Then you get to Judges, and then Judges spans over 400 years. So this, the book actually is span, it actually um, spans a large um, period of time in Israel's history. And there's different leaders that rose up um, in um, in this time. And maybe a theme that helps us bring context to looking at the book of Judges, and the theme that I give it is failure through compromise. They kept making um, silly mistakes, following the, the wrong path, following the wrong people, and they kept... Comprom- so it's not a failure in that you've tried something, you've gone, I'm going to give this a go, I'm going to do my researches, I'm going to go out of limb, I'm going to take a risk, and then failure. It's not that failure. It's Failure because of compromise, because you've you've allowed other things to come in and affect your progress. Failure through compromise. Um, We have no idea who wrote this book. Um, Theories are that perhaps one of the priests did, so we don't believe the person um, was alive at the time of the story, wrote these stories down, but it was passed on. But there's two key verses that help us understand the book of Judges, therefore will help us understand the story of Samson. So I've got the two verses up on the screen for us. Um, It's in chapter 2, verse 10. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things um, he had done for Israel. And so this is talking about, this is after the death of, mainly after the death of Joshua, if you know this guy, a crazy good him and um, Caleb. Uh, were part of this first generation of leadership into the Promised Land. And that generation had died. That generation had forgotten about the story of Jericho. They'd forgotten about the defeat of uh, many of the, the enemies of Israel. And so after that generation, they'd forgotten Or put it another way, they'd forgotten to tell the stories of what had happened as to why their nation, who they were, that they were this specially chosen people by God. And towards the end of um, Judges, there's this verse. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And these two verses actually sum up and give a theme to the book of Judges. And like Israel in the book of Judges, so is, is the same with us. We constantly have this drift away, come back to relationship with God. And, and even, even now, if we think about it to ourselves, when, when we get into a space where we think we might free ourselves from what God expects of us and following in his ways, when we free ourselves from God, we actually become slaves to sin. So if we go, no, I'm going to live for myself, I'm going to do whatever I think is right in my own eyes, eventually it leads just becoming a slave to wrongdoing and a slave to um, destructive and, um, uh, and poor um, habits in our lives that end up dominating us and owning us. But there's always a but when it comes with God. God is always faithful to try and bring about salvation. And that's a little bit of a context as we um, have a look at these verses in the book of Judges. So I'm in Judges chapter 13 and verse 1 is where we start the book, uh, the story of Samson. Judges chapter 13 and verse 1. And let me read verse 1 for you. Again the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines <coughs> who oppressed them for 40 years. And this statement is actually said over and over and over and again in the book of Judges. In fact, it's said seven times, but the only real difference is who the oppressor was. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord and God handed them over to such and such. So, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Canaanites or the Jebusites or any of these ites, a lot of them ended in ites. Um, and in this case, it was the Philistines. And um just a funny story my my grandfather um we if you remember those days where you dropped in on people unannounced because you didn't have a mobile phone, does anyone remember those days? You just had to like you, you, you showed up at grandpa 's house and you just knocked on the door and just hoped that they were home and we used to knock on the door and he would um you could hear the door open and you know how you get those fly screens that you can 't see through and you're like I don't know who it is. And, and you hear this voice from the other side of the fire screen. Goes, ah, the Philistines are upon thee. And this is that phrase is from this story, the Philistines who were oppressing um, Israel. I've got a lot of fond memories of my, my late grandfather um, being a clown like that. And so in this story, we have the Philistines who were oppressing them. But this statement in the book of Judges always preceded the rise of another hero. So if you've heard of a person by the name of Gideon, if you've heard of a person by the name of Deborah or Ehud, these are three bigger names, there's a few others, but any time that this statement that Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, anyone who's reading this book for the first time but reading in order is going, another hero is on the way. So you read this in in the introduction to the story of Samson, you go, a hero is on the way. Someone is coming to help us, to help us free the oppression of whoever is the oppressive people at the time. And this is how it starts. This hero is on the way. Hope is on the way. Deliverance is on the way. And each time God raises up a judge. And as the story unfolds, if you look over the next few verses, there's this guy by the name of Manoah. And um, he is married, he has a wife, his wife's name is not mentioned, which is interesting because he's mentioned, but in this story his wife is much wiser than he is. In fact, the angel that appears to her, appears to her first. There's a few other stories in Scripture like that where if, um, probably the most um, famous example is the angel appearing before Mary. She's the one that finds out first. But each time um, this happens this angel appears, is to give a message. Some, someone is coming, but like some others in Scripture, we are told that the wife of Manoah is barren. She's unable to have children. And for, for the, the, the Israelite that's reading this, we can look after the story of other women that were barren or part of a story, but the person that came before them was the matriarch of their, their nation, Sarah. She, or Sarai, the wife of Abraham, she was also barren. And like Sarah, like Sarai, like Abraham, an angel appeared to say, you are going to have a child. And so if you are an Israelite reading this and going, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, there's a hero coming. All right, husband, wife, all right, we've got a child on the way, there's going to be a hero coming. But she's barren. An angel shows up. Whoa. We're in Abraham and Sarah territory. So not only is this guy just this person, this guy that's coming to deliver, not only is going to be a good judge, he's going to be one of the best. Because his story is immaculate. His story is something else. And we continue through this story. And we find out um, throughout the story of Israel, we've got other people other women that are barren. So Rebecca and Rachel. So there's actually there's there's almost like a family heritage of barrenness that you may not have been aware of, so that Sarah is barren, Rebecca is barren, Rachel is barren. There's something wrong with the, in the gene pool in, in um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But anyway, um, they have their prayer answered. Elizabeth, if you know who Elizabeth is, the, 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 the mother of um, who was considered barren, the, the mother of John the Baptist, who is also under the same vow that we will talk about in a second. A lot of few echoes happening here. So we can continue on and we look at verse 5 of chapter 13. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son. His hair must never be cut. He will be dedicated to, the, to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. This is what the reader is looking for. They've gone, all right, we've read this deliverer, um, statement before about how, um, Israel is being oppressed, how they, um, they, they need of a deliverer. They need someone to pull them back from the Philistines. And now here we have it. There's this son being born and he's going to be dedicated to God and he's never going to be, have his hair cut. In fact, scripture tells us that he was to be dedicated to God as a Nazarite. And Nazarite is, is something that is described in the book um, of Numbers. So uh, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. In Numbers chapter 6, it tells us what it means to be a Nazarite. And there's um, every evidence to suggest that, that Samson's father knew exactly what it meant to be a Nazarite. And in Numbers chapter 6, it tells us that there are three things that a Nazarite should have about their life. And it's already been mentioned, one, they're not to cut their hair. Number two, they must have nothing to do with grapes. So some people say that they're not supposed to drink alcohol. Well, that's true, but nothing to do with grapes. So no raisins, no pips, no, um, what do you call the, uh, grape seed oil, um, what is it, cream of tartare made from, from um, grape products as well. Anything to do with grapes is a no-go. So keep in mind, not cutting the hair, nothing to do with grapes and, or, or even um, products of a vineyard and does not come into co- into contact with corpses, with anything dead. So you can't even go to funerals. Your father dies, part of your vow is to not even go to funerals. Do, don't go anywhere near the dead. So just to repeat this so we know what's going on, go nowhere near grape products, don't cut the hair, and don't hang out, don't touch, don't be anywhere near the dead. Let's fast forward a little bit. Let's go down to verse 24 and 25. When her son was born, she named him Samson, and the Lord blessed him as he grew up. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir upon him while he lived in -ah -ah Mahanahadan, which is located between the towns of Zorah and Esther. Now, for those um, living at that time or soon after, these are all significant places. Um, There's actually a lot of um, really cool connections happening here if we could um, take the time to go through it. And that's why they're mentioned here. But the place I want us to focus on this verse is the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. All the formula was coming together. This woman was barren and now this barrenness was cured. There's an angel of the Lord that's set up. He's going to be dedicated. And now the spirit of the Lord is on him. If you're familiar with the story of John the Baptist. Like for us reading it later on, you going, there's some really cool connections here. We're looking for like John the Baptist material to lead the people, to lead them um, uh, against the Philistines and to lead them on a path back towards God. And so everything is going good in the story so far. Full of hope, full of promise, Samson grows up to be this mighty leader of Israel. Let's go into verse 14. Uh, chapter 14. One day when Samson was in Tim, uh, Timnah, one of the Philistines, uh, one of the Philistines caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, "A young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her, get her for me." Now, I've noticed a few of us are either sitting very close to each other or we're in or we're in relationships. Can I assume we're in relationship over here? Yes? Yep. Um. Yes, yes, and yes, yeah, okay. Did it work? Did you go, she's all right, go get her, Dad? Is that how it worked? <laughs> it's like, no, no. Um. Obviously, living in a different time, but he comes home. He's gone into an area. So when he's in Timnah, he's not amongst his own people. He's amongst the Philistines. He's amongst his oppressors. He is hanging out with the people he is supposed to overthrow and he sees this female. A young Philistine woman caught his eye. Okay, so far, as way, at least the way the story is being told, he's not going well. Now, some time has passed. He's obviously grown up. He's become uh, an adult and he meets this non-Jew, an enemy, the people he's supposed to throw. He wants to marry her parents aren't too happy about this. And if you have a look a quick glance in verse 4, it actually tells us that this was from God. And you as a reader are going, all right, here's this guy, he's dedicated to God, he's got these vows governing his life, the Spirit of the Lord was stirring on him, and he's hanging out with a Philistine woman? What's that about? And you keep reading, and it says, and God wanted this to happen? Like, what is God doing? This is not the way things are supposed to go. And it tells us that God wanted him to marry the enemy and God wanted to use this to confront the Philistines. There was going to be something about this relationship that God was going to use. Not like he got married and then God's like, okay, I'll use it. It was actually part of God's intention. It's almost like he tapped Samson on the shoulder and said, she's a looker. We don't really know exactly why God was doing it this way. It just tells us that this was going to be this way that he was going to confront the Philistines. So they go down to Medah, verses um, 5 and 6. As Samson and his parents were going down to Timnah, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson near a vineyard of Timnah. At that moment, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him and he ripped the lion's jaw apart with his bare hands. He did it as easily if it were a young goat but he didn't tell his father or mother about it. Okay, I'm so confused in this. So this is the way to read. Samson and his parents, they're walking down the road, a lion jumps out, he rips up the lion. Where did his parents go all of a sudden? Like, did they see the lion and they bolted and he stood firm? It it, it literally says, he's with his parents, he kills the lion, and he doesn't tell his parents. And you're like, wait, where are his parents? So where they go, I have no idea. They've disappeared quickly. Maybe they went another way because he was walking along. The young lion jumps out while he is walking past her. Where shouldn't he be? He shouldn't be anywhere near a vineyard. Yet this lion jumps out. So in, in, just in the space of, a, of two seconds, he's going past a vineyard where he shouldn't be. He jumps out of a lion and... Kills it, ergo touches a corpse. So he's broken two Nazarite vows in the matter of moments. Yet the God empowered him to do it. God empowered him to kill the lion. This might give us a bit of a headache, but God empowered him to break his Nazarite vow to touch the dead. That sort of makes us a little uncomfortable. Another confusing thing, he rips the the lion apart as if it were a young goat. Is ripping, a, a ripping apart a young goat easy? It's like, oh, it's hard to rip apart a lion, but I was really strong at that time. It was like ripping apart a goat. It's like, how strong was this guy that ripping apart a goat was easy and a lion was just a little bit harder? I have no idea what's going on here. But it says that he it tells us or at least alludes to us that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. It's almost like the lion is racing towards him. He's having a fight or flight response. He feels something within him that says, I can do this. How many of us like have a lion jump at this and we're going, I got this. Um Yeah, I'm going to grab it right in the mouth and just rip it in two. It's like... I would have been, well, I would have ran and then I would have died because the lion would have caught up with me. But it says the the spirit of the Lord came upon him. So there must have been something in him that said, I can do this. I have been given. There's something that's arrived on me right now that I am stronger or more powerful than I was just a moment ago, and so powerfully that he felt it. Like... I'm not quite sure if I'm speaking to the wrong crowd, but a Popeye moment. you know, Like he's had the, like the spinach and the muscles are like, it's like, I've got this. And he prevails in the face of the lion. Not confidence, not faith that's built up over time or God's revealed to him. This is not like a David moment where he's killed the, le- the, 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 um, the lion and the bear with his slingshot and now he feels like he can confront the giant. This is an instantaneous feeling that he can do this. But something that I think is a lesson for you and a lesson for me is that there are times in our lives where we will have to face lions, maybe not physical lions, but powerful enemies. In fact, the Apostle Peter, when he writes one of his letters, he says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 5. I've got it for the screen. Stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring what? Roaring lion. Looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him. Be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world are going through the same time of suffering you are. So as a metaphor, it says, there is this lion, the devil, who is looking to, to, to single us out and attack us and devour us. It's saying, stand firm against this enemy that is more powerful than you. Why should we try and stand firm against an enemy that is more powerful than us? Why? Because we have God on our side. Not only do we have God in our side, we have God in us. Scripture also say, says, and for some reason I can quote there's a song about a, uh, this particular verse for some reason, I know the song better than the bible verse, but um, greater is he that lives in me than he that is in the world from the uh, from the epistle uh, written by John greater is God that is inside of me than he, the enemy that is in the world. We can stand firm against our enemies against the enemy because we have God with us. Not only do we have God with us, like Samson, we have the Holy Spirit, God, in us. We can stand firm. We can stand strong. We have the power of the living Jesus in us to stand firm against our enemies. In fact, just just before this, this passage in First Peter chapter 5, it actually has a verse that some of you might know that says, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. He's just said, I care for you. Tell me about the stuff that's going on in your life. Tell me about your struggles. Tell me about your problems. Tell me about the ways that you feel like you're, um, you have the enemy against you. God's saying, I care for you. And because I care for you, I'm going to send the Spirit so you can stand against the enemy. Stand firm against him. Whatever the enemy might be throwing at you, maybe you need to be reminded to stand firm. Stay strong. Hold the line. Samson knew in that moment that the Lord was with him. And if you trust in Jesus, he is with you too. Let's keep going. Let's move on to um, Judges chapter 16. We're going to skip over quite a a section of the story here, but we're going to arrive in Judges chapter 16 and verse 4 and 5. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah. All right, so he saw that woman. She's unnamed, by the way. She eventually marries him. There's a bit of an altercation that sort of ends up her being brutally killed, but we won't go into the details. He gets pretty angry makes a lot of corpses because he's angry. I hope you understand what that means. We fast forward and this is where we are in chapter 16. So he falls in love with this person named Delilah. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah who um, lived in the valley of Sarek. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, entice Samson to tell you what makes him so strong and how he can be overpowered and tied up securely then each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Samson falls in love with Delilah. Delilah falls in love with money. This is the first female in the story of Samson that actually gets a name. His mum doesn't get a name. His first wife doesn't get a name. And... Female, at the start of chapter, can I say lady of the night? Does that, are we on the same page if I use that term? She doesn't have a name. She's the first person that gets a name. This woman that he falls in love with is from a place called the Valley of Sarek. The Valley of Sarek loosely translates as the Valley of Red Grapes. He falls in love with a Philistine woman who lives in the area of vineyards. He's not doing too well on this Nazarite vow thing. She doesn't care for him. She just cares for influence and money. She plots against him and eventually is plotting for his downfall. Find out why is Samson so, um, why is he so strong? What is the secret of his strength? Now, if there's a secret of his strength, it means that the answer is not obvious. Now, I I grew up in the church, and I grew up listening to these these stories, and to me, Samson is like this muscle-upon-muscle, bodybuilder, wrestler, like his shoulders would be like twice to me. Does anyone else get that picture from Samson? Like he's like this big dude. And even if he is this big dude that ripping apart a a goat is easy, but he needs the spirit of God for a lion. They're looking at him and going, there's still a secret. Now, if you see this massive guy, and he can pick up this massive weight off the ground, are you going, ooh, what's the secret of his strength? You're like, uh, he's got lots of muscles. Like, it's not a secret. But they're actually asking, what's the secret? So they still saw whatever he did to be beyond what is naturally available in muscle. They see something special in him, even though they are his enemy. What is the secret? Even the enemies knows there's something to it. So she goes about the task. She asks him once. He makes up a scenario. She attempts it. She asks again. He makes up another scenario. She attempts it. It fails again. Asks him again. Makes up a scenario. Three times it fails we move on down to verse 15. Then Delilah, mine says Delilah pouted. I'm not quite sure how they get that out of the original like language, but it works. Like Delilah pouted. Does anyone have someone in their lives that, where the lip sort of goes? Maybe a child or a spouse when they don't quite get their own way. She pouted. How can you tell me I love you when you don't share the secrets with me? You've made fun of me three times now and you still haven't told me what makes you so strong. There's something like inherently messed up in this situation. She's like, she's not saying like, I love you. It's like, you said you love me. That mustn't be true because you've told me a lie three times and I've tested that lie and I have found out that you're a liar so you mustn't love me. Like, there's something going on in in either one of their brains if not both. And she starts laying it on a bit thick. You don't love me. We've heard this before. His first wife did exactly the same thing. He made a bet that these people couldn't figure out this riddle. He told them a riddle and they couldn't figure it out. They had like a a week or so to figure it out or 30 days. I forget what it was. But they had a time frame to figure it out. And she goes and asks him what it is. And, she doesn't te- and Samson doesn't tell her, and he doesn't tell her, and he doesn't tell her, and she does the same thing. Don't you love me? And he tells her. Then she runs off and tells her enemy straight away. This is his wife. And so his wife, his former wife, betrays him with the secret. And now this next woman is doing the same thing. But then we get this really interesting verse. She torments him with nagging Day after day until he's sick to death of it. Anyone be nagged until you're sick to death of it? Everyone's starting to look at their shoes for some reason. It's like, all the guys are like, do not look anywhere else. Shake your head and just eyes straight. No one nags me. But then the females say, well, if they did it the first time, I wouldn't have to nag. (laughs) I got an amen from that. It's so much nagging that he was sick to death of it. He was broken. He'd had enough. He was done. He had checked out. Verse 17. Finally, Samson shared his secret with her. My hair has never been cut, he confessed, for I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head was to be shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as anyone else. He gives his secret. The story hasn't mentioned the Nazarite vow since the birth story. And for some reason, we don't know why, he believes the hair is the secret. Because hanging out in grapevines, drinking, eating, killing things in grapevines, those things didn't stop his strength. He seemed to believe that this would be the thing that would take his strength away. But there's nothing in the entire story that would tell us that would actually happen. Maybe he knew something that we don't know, or maybe he's just made an assumption. Or maybe he's put his journey and his story only in what is in the outside appearance. You could fake being a Nazarite, provided you didn't cut your hair. You could drink what you want. You could eat what you want. So long as no one saw you, you could fake it. You could hang around corpses. You could kill things. Once you can go and have a shower and nothing harms. No one knows. But the hair, as it tells us, seven locks of it. I don't know why. I don't know how he can have seven locks of hair, but seven locks of this long hair that he's never cut in his life. It almost seems in this story that he's put a lot of emphasis in appearances. He only looked after the thing that made him look like he stood apart. Not what he did, not how he lived his life, but only the illusion of appearance. Which begs the question of us, is it the same for us? Are we happy with the illusion of doing the right thing? Of being the right thing, of saying I'm a Christian and as long as I look the part, it's okay. What about me? How did Jesus put it? John chapter thirteen thirty-five says, "Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples." Being a Nazarite was difficult to fake, but Samson seemed to have found a way. Being a disciple of Jesus is difficult. To fake. But sometimes we can find a way to love others. Not just the, the ones, to love the ones that are easy to love, but to love the ones that by all accounts are unlovable. Loving the people that you disagree with. Loving those that live a life that you would not endorse. Loving those that seem to make mistakes over and over and over again. We can so easily be enticed by the way of Samson because we find that faking it is easier than actually doing it. Delilah knows this time he told his secret. She called the Philistine leaders back. She puts him to sleep and someone shaves his head. I don't know what's going on in his life right now that he can have his head shaved while asleep. Is that possible? Do you think someone could? There must have been something in that wine to put him out for that long. I don't know. But he has his head shaved. He is weakened. And we are told his strength leaves him. And then we have this verse in verse 20, which tells us a powerful, sad truth about Samson. Then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. When he woke up, he thought, I will do as I've always done. I'll do as before and I'll shake myself free. But he did not realize that the Lord had left him. This man who had such promise, such hope, the next hero, the next Moses, the next Joshua, the next Gideon, the next Deborah, He was going to be their next hero. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And people who know God, and if they know God and spend time with God and have a relationship with God, they know if they, if God is with them or not. But Samson did not know. He did not know that the Lord had left him. If there was someone that you would have put money on to be the the deliverer that Israel needed and wanted, he was the guy. You would have not put money on Gideon. You would have put money on Samson. He was made for the task. He wasn't an unlikely hero. He was made of the stuff that heroes are made of. Yet some terribly sad, incredibly profound truth He did not realize that the Lord had left him. And if you don't realize that someone has left you, it means you never really realize that they were with you to begin with. He was weak and overcome and he lost. Now just to pick on, I'm going to pick on my two closest friends here. What what were your names? Yep. Laurie? Lauren Lauren and... And Eric, are we just dating? Are we married? Married, okay. So Eric and Lauren. Yep. So I found out this sad truth. Um, Lauren's left Eric. In fact, she's filed for divorce. But Eric has no idea. Wouldn't that be weird? It's like she left three weeks ago and he hasn't noticed she's gone. You'd be like, "Uh, dude... I don't think there's any help for you. <laughs> like, reconcile, reconciliation might be possible, but if you haven't know that she's disappeared, there's, I don't think there's much hope left. He had no idea that God had left him, which meant he didn't know that God was with him. But then in the very next um, two verses, in verse 22, it says, Before long... His hair began to grow back. And just this little sniff, just this little piece right here, we have, if it was the hair that made him strong, if that's where the promise of strength was, a little bit of hope was on its way back. His hair began to grow again. Now, if you're worried about this guy, you'd be like sending him to the barber like every few days just to make sure that hair didn't come back but his hair began to grow back. He was a target of taunts and mockery. He was defeated, but God was not done. God always looks for a way of salvation. God is not done with Samson. He is not done with Israel, and he is not done with you. The story of Samson is the story of Israel. Israel was dedicated and set apart for God. Samson was dedicated and set apart from God. Israel, time and again, kept breaking the covenant. Samson kept breaking his Nazarite vow. Israel was seduced by foreign gods. Samson was seduced by foreign women. Israel seems to never learn from their mistakes. Samson doesn't learn from his mistakes. Israel is Samson. Samson is Israel. Samson didn't know that the Lord had left him. Did Israel know? What about me? What about you? Samson wasn't led by the Spirit, but he was led by his eyes. In fact, 1 John says the world offers um, cravings for physical pleasure The version that I remember growing up with is is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. This is what governed Samson's life. These are not of God. These are not the ways of Jesus. But Jesus was the epitome of the example of knowing if God was with him. In Mark 15 verse 34, it reads... Then at three o'clock, Jesus came, called out with a loud voice. Jesus has been betrayed. He's been trialed. He's been convicted of sins that were not his. And he is nailed to a cross. And he is on that cross. And he cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, ilamna shabachthalani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus knew the exact moment his father stepped back from him to allow him to die. Why did Jesus know that God, that God the Father had left him? Because he had spent every day with him. He knew when his father stepped back to allow him to die. Samson, not a clue. Samson didn't know that the Lord had left him because he had not taken the time to get to know the Lord when he was with him. He was trying to satisfy with superficial rather than what truly satisfies. What the world needs right now, what we need right now, what your church, what this church here right now needs is not showy, is not physically strong, it's not smarter it's not more educated it's not more degrees or phd's it's not any of that and it's definitely not the superficial but people that know that the lord is with them people who have accepted jesus as lord and savior and have gotten to know him people that show by their actions by their lives that they are disciples of Jesus. So as a way of finishing up here today, I want to read a passage of scripture, but this passage of scripture is going to be our prayer to finish. So I'm going to invite you where you are just to bow your head and close your eyes, and I'll read this prayer that the Apostle Paul gives the church of, um, in Ephesus. So let's pray. I pray that from his glorious and unlimited resources, that he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Jesus Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong, that you may have the power to understand all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ. Though it is too great to understand fully, then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through all his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen.